What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to another episode of Fed Watch. I am sitting across from Ansel and one of the newest members of the Bitcoin Magazine team, Sam J. Rule. Sam probably has one of the coolest names out there, and uh, he's putting out some amazing work as a analyst for the Deep Dive, our premium newsletter, um, our premium markets intelligence newsletter, to be in, uh, to be specific. Uh, but Sam, welcome to Fed Watch. Excited. Uh, to host you and uh, talk about some of these really interesting topics and charts you have prepared for us. Yeah, thank you, CK. Uh, hey, everyone. Hey, Ansel. It's, uh, we were just talking, meeting Ansel for the first time here. So um, really stoked. A lot going on in the macro world right now, trying to trying to catch up on what's going on. And so got a lot of different charts and things to go through here and, and talk about some different topics. Awesome. So I guess, Sam, before we uh, get into all of these different topics you got prepared for us, uh, let's jump into a little bit about your background and your story behind, you know, how you got into Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, probably the best place to start is, you know, my background is is in studying economics, something that I really loved and really wanted to sink my teeth into. So kind of uh, post my undergrad, I went on to work with a uh, market research and market intelligence firm. And we really specialized in a lot of market intelligence around Fortune 100 tech companies and trying to help them figure out different market trends, uh, kind of the software is eating the world type dynamic. So we were looking at, specifically, I was looking at cloud computing market, I was looking at 5G, IoT markets, and was also doing some economic research where we would try to directionally forecast where GDP is going and collect kind of different data from there. So um, that helped me build a pretty good background in terms of my understanding of tech and where it was going, uh, also a good base and, and kind of macro. Uh, that also came with a lot of my own uh, kind of framework and education looking into what Ray Dalio was talking about, the long-term debt cycle and kind of big debt principles that really set a good macro framework for me to start thinking about, okay, back in that time frame, like what is that, uh, what's happening with QE, um, what's happening with the Fed, why is the economic situation it is today and what's going on with it. Um, and so mainly from there, uh, kind of getting into Bitcoin, uh, I took a couple other startup roles kind of after that, um, increasingly getting into Bitcoin from 2016, 2017, kind of like from a what is blockchain perspective in the very beginning uh, from, from what our clients were interested in. Um, and then really just going down the rabbit hole and getting to the point where this year, quit my job uh, for personal reasons, professional reasons, but was really saying, okay, I want to go into researching Bitcoin as much as I can, make it a full-time role. So I started writing, researching, analyzing, um, and then got linked up with Bitcoin Magazine and Dylan LeClaire. So uh, been been four or five weeks since then. Yeah, I love, uh, I love that Bitcoin Magazine is getting all these great Bitcoiners in a mix of backgrounds, a mix of, uh, you know, expertise. And I'm a bit of a hermit. When it comes to Bitcoiners, I don't get out much. Uh, it was big for me to go down to Miami, even though I'm in Florida, uh, to go down to Miami this year. But um, it's great to be a part of the Bitcoin Magazine family so I can meet such great Bitcoiners. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So I guess, Sam, like you mentioned, you know, you kind of went from, you know, let's just call it traditional finance to blockchain to Bitcoin. Can you talk a little bit more about that journey and, uh, you know, what maybe what were some of those keys to uh, taking steps towards more of a like Bitcoin maximalist or monetary maximalist perspective? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the high level from an economics and tech background was I was looking for, I was really interested in the technology from a solution from a new monetary network perspective. And so kind of looking at this Ray Dalio long-term debt cycle conclusion and saying, okay, we're repeating history here. We have this uh, eventual credit cycle collapse that's on its way. Um, it's a perfect time to be reinventing and rethinking about what a monetary network is going to look like. Also on the back ends of those cycles, you, know, you look for people that are going to take human action and, and go into what's going to give them the most purchasing power that they can have. Um, and so that's what really started it. And then kind of diving into all of the different economic incentive structures within the Bitcoin protocol, diving into that it's an energy innovation as much as it is a financial and economic one. So I think really what separated me from saying, okay, why Bitcoin versus other things is really what is the problem it's trying to solve? And it's trying to solve this root problem with money that we have today and becoming this new monetary network that we can look forward to and say, hey, um, potentially that could be the future. And, and based on what people's actions are, we're starting to see that kind of rise. So. Um, I look at it very much from from kind of an economic and money problem lens. So where where are you at right now then on this, uh, you know, tying in Dalio's long-term debt cycle uh, with the current CPI inflation and other things? Um, what, what do you uh, make of that? And can you fill us in on maybe uh, how you you're tying that into some of your writings with uh, Dylan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think me and Dylan... Um, definitely agree that kind of where we're at in that cycle is that eventually we're leading to a very painful deflationary collapse in terms of the system. And where we're at right now is what Ray Dalio would be is in monetary policy three, um, which is, you know, MMT style kind of policy where we're looking at increased fiscal uh, kind of deficit spending from the QE perspective, or just kind of outright helicopter money in that stimulus um, to really try to keep this going as much as possible. Uh, so what I'd see like in the current inflationary uh, dynamic where we're at right now is that I would, I would think that we're due for, and so that's kind of how I, I view the inflation today. I kind of look at it as more of a potentially medium persistent higher inflation that's, that's going to happen, especially when we start seeing a lot of the, the rollback from kind of the transitory narrative and now saying that even from Yellen's perspective, you know, inflation is not going to be normal till, till next year. Um, and then uh, we can kind of get into deeper this, but it's really uh, at the core of it, the, the level of debt to GDP ratios and how are we going to sustain kind of the interest rate payments and also the legal obligations that we have across uh, Medicare, Social Security, and a number of other, number of other larger programs that, uh, that we need to pay for. So um, when you say like a, a second inflationary impulse or whatever uh, your wording was, does that mean like inside of this long-term debt cycle that we had like the 1970s great inflation and then we had a period of disinflation and now we're having going to have another period of inflation is that how yeah i mean i would i would i would say like a, a, that really the inflationary pressure is coming from what is going to be dependent on like the fiscal policy route that we have to go through so if we're going to see that fiscal policy to finance federal deficits that uh, eventually that we're going to need to to pay for, if that's going to increase, then we're gonna see some larger inflationary pressure to come through first. Excellent. And then um, my second question on that, that intro piece there is, um, when you say deflation, um, do you mean 
monetary deflation or do you mean like uh, destruction, you know, like end of World War II type of where the actual wealth of the world is destroyed or do you think it's going to be a monetary phenomenon? Um, what, what do you see like after this inflationary impulse into a deflationary decline? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think largely that, well, just thinking from like the deflationary uh, standpoint anyways, like we're already in a very deflationary type environment. Um, kind of when you think of through, whether you're thinking through demographics or globalization or just technology as a whole, I think uh, Jeff Booth has, you know, um, kind of great thoughts on that in terms of where we're going technology deflation. But yeah, I think in terms of kind of this bigger monetary deflationary shock, um, where we have this unwinding of everything that's in the credit markets. And so um, I think it's definitely going to be painful. I'm not sure to what extent that it's going to be or where it's going to come from, um, but, but certainly looming. Excellent. I think we lost Christian. Are you still there, CK? I am still here. My okay. internet is like saying it's sketchy. So I was like turning off my video to try to minimize uh, the interruptions. Um, so I guess, Sam, one of our key theses here on FedWatch is that like, let's just call it um, mainstream inflation is not like really a thing. And like money printing is really different and works really differently than pretty much how everyone talks about it. Um, and if anything, what we're seeing is just uh, deflation from credit crunches and a broken system, as well as destruction of supply chains. Um, and that's like creating a lot of kind of like increased prices and pain. And that's like a, a more realistic and honest way to kind of describe what's actually happening. I mean, Ansel, correct me if I was mischaracterized, you know, our, our base case here. Like, what do you make of that? And like, how does that fit into um, kind of like the idea of inflation that you've been kind of thinking about and people have been talking about? Sure, yeah. And I've got some some charts here we could walk through and just how I'm thinking of like the certain components that we're going through. Um, but largely, I think in terms of uh, kind of the new layer of QE where we're talking about using quantitative easing to uh, kind of finance these fiscal deficit spending in, in the market and doing that when we're keeping a coordination of monetary policy at low levels uh, that we've never seen before. And there's a great paper um, that was authored by Stanley Fisher, vice chair of the Fed, um, and some others back in 2019. And, and they're really talking about the next big downturn in terms of the, in, in the playbook and what do you do when interest rates are low at these levels. And uh, and, and you're already pumping kind of QE just from uh, kind of the way I think about QE in terms of an asset inflation, not really showing up in the CPI, uh, kind of what do you do next and really fiscal policy, that coordination being its biggest tool. Um, and uh, let me just pull up uh, kind of a quote from there in terms of what uh, inflation, when they were talking about this level of fiscal stimulus and helicopter money that's coming into it, um, but really, and really what they get down to is they caution that, you know, there's little experience in using this helicopter money to generate just enough inflation to achieve price stability. Um, and so history as well as theory suggest large scale injection of this money are simply not a tool that can be fine tuned or modest increase in inflation. So I, I think that yes, although there's a ton of deflationary pressure in the market, I think this is relatively new, putting in that $7 trillion of a different type of, of QE and kind of fiscal stimulus policy. And I'm not sure yet that we've really seen uh, the effects of how that's gonna kind of play out inflation in the short term. And so 
I'm looking and saying like, what are the components of inflation that might be playing out and extending into next year? Um, and then also what are the fiscal policy implications if we are to continue doing this and go down this path, um, what is that going to do inflation uh, kind of in the next maybe three or five years? So you're seeing uh, there is direct coordination. And I know that that is kind of always been not not a, a conspiracy theory or anything, but um, you know Powell has consistently asked for fiscal support, and the the academics uh, that you cite and stuff with Fisher, he um, has been asking for that. But do you think that there is? I haven't heard like a legislator talking about, hey, you know, this is our turn now. We need to spend. Do you think there is legitimate understanding on both sides of what they're doing? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I'm not sure if there's a legitimate, you know, understanding, but I mean, they do come at the same time and it is the first time that we're using this type of tool. So we're going to get to see how they both play out together. And then I think people are going to get to see the impacts of saying, okay, how can we potentially use this tool again in the future, uh, if needed in, in terms of, let's say we have some type of tapering event that puts us into, uh, maybe more of a slowdown or recession faster than normal and saying, okay, well, we use this tool before. Uh, in this type of coordination, and you know, it seems reasonable that that we can do that again. Um, do you think we're going to taper? Do you think that's actually going to happen? Uh, we talked about on the show here before that there are possible other. There's a third way, right? Is um, changing the composition. So an operation twist uh, is possible, but not in the same way. Uh, they've talked about perhaps curtailing the mortgage-backed security portion of their purchases while keeping the treasury portion uh, the same. Uh, do you think they're going to taper at the end of this year? And uh, kind of what's your prediction over the next, I guess, two months? Yeah, I mean, all, all points of what I you know listened to last in, in terms of uh, what Jay Powell was, was focused on, it seemed a pretty positive perspective as long as the unemployment reports came in uh, meaningfully for them, meaningfully positive over the last couple of months that taper was really on the table. So yeah, I do think the taper is going to happen um, likely next month. Um, I think they, you know, are, are with inflation starting to run hotter and, and, and really starting to look at the levels of the S&P kind of valuation models there and how, how close they are connected to these central bank assets in terms of correlations. I think they're realizing that uh, the markets, yeah, they're going to do it. Um, and, and I think even latest that I think maybe two rate hikes for next year is, is, uh, um, kind of maybe tough to do, but it seems like the market from the, from the tips perspective, five-year break-even perspective is, is pricing in some of that right now. I think the chance for a policy error is very high and they are, I don't, I don't think Powell is comfortable starting to taper right now when we see stuff like Evergrande, we see um, different um, kind of stressors in the supply chain and, and the economy is on a knife's edge. And I don't know if Powell actually wants to commit this error and taper right as we're heading into a next recessionary period. Yeah, I mean, I, that's also a good point. Where do you think then uh, kind of the taper would start or how, what would be a signal uh, kind of in your mind to, to start a taper in that scenario? Well, I don't know. I think that uh, he's, the Fed is stuck between a rock and a hard place. They, they have said they're going to taper. And if they don't, then that shakes confidence in the Fed. 
but if they taper and it's a huge uh, policy error, then they're also going to lose confidence. So they're kind of stuck, perhaps like uh, I was just saying, as they change the composition of the QE uh, and say that they're going to wait and see if the labor market improves even more or, you know, something like that, uh, they can always delay it for another month or two, but then you run into the same problem again. So uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's a very hard decision right now in Powell. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% US on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in. They leverage it up and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoin is like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. I mean, I was going to say, you know, we always talk about how a lot of what the Fed does is impression management, right? And just always trying to set the, the, uh, the impression and, 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 and make sure that the market is, is, you know, thinking the way that they um, that they want them to think. So, hey, we're tightening up because inflation is hot. I also find it kind of strange that um, people are, are embracing the inflation narrative so strongly when that's, I mean, I think it's clearly not what's happening. Like it's, I think what's clearly happening is supply chain disrupt, disruptions um, and destruction in general. And like, 
you see the port of Los Angeles and like the fact that they can't empty cargo because there's too many empty cargo things filling up the port. Um, and there's not enough tr truck drivers to remove the empty containers and pick up new containers and everything is completely just backlogged. Um, and uh, the second, third, fourth order effect, we haven't even fully felt that yet. Um, but that's, that's not inflation. Prices aren't going up because of inflation. They're going up because the supply chain broke. Um, I guess, Sam, what do you, what do you take uh, from that? Yeah, I guess I would say that, you know, in terms of what we've done on the monetary inflation level, even with the velocity is that these things are kind of supply chain, supply chain dynamics and dislocations are going to happen um, because of that. When there's more money in the system, whether that be in assets or showing up in certain CPI, um, and just as a result, we're going to see more supply chain dislocations. Um, but I would say, you know, that there are some uh, maybe secular changes in terms of how we think about inflation and in how I think about it in terms of these larger deflationary shifts. Um, so if you think about demogs um, and demographics, you have these aging populations, you have a slowing, declining population there. Uh, but one thing have too is we have 70 million kind of baby boomers uh, they're going to be hitting these required minimum distributions uh, kind of through 401ks and RAs that they're going to be taking something like three to four percent of the market every year uh, you've also got kind of maybe a secular change in globalization where you we've offshored labor for so long and we're getting price efficiencies and price reductions from there um, but now we're dealing with kind of social unrest and or trade tensions between someone like China and us and, and other countries and, and looked at we've had peak kind of globalization potentially around 2009, 2010, uh, kind of around 60%. Um, so those are more like the larger secular trends changing. I think you could also look and say, okay, well, we're seeing a reversal in oil and the commodities market right now in terms of energy um, that's going to be pushing this up. We're seeing PPI numbers across China PPI hitting kind of all time highs, um, the highest in, in the last 13 years. Uh, we've got rising PPI levels in the US and, and, and now some of the highest PPI levels in Germany saw its highest growth um, driven in September. And, and even without energy, including that PPI is up. So I think there are some components um, when you look at uh, different inflationary concerns, whether it be rent is a huge one right now. Uh, and I don't think that shows up well in terms of the CPI trend, in terms of uh, um, owners occupied rent. And then also from a used car perspective, it seems like that's got more room to grow as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still see some components in the inflationary data that looks like it's going to last, but I certainly, you know, deflationary cases, is a good one to have. And I know you guys had a, a Snyder on here earlier and I've, I've seen some of his work and he makes a pretty good case in the opposite direction. So, I mean, I know you have some great charts for us, Sam, uh, maybe to support, um, you know, the case that you're making. Uh, do you wanna share some of these and we can just talk through them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Looks great, what are we looking at? Yeah, so this is a, uh, a chart from uh, Jim Bianco, Bianco Research, and putting together some Bloomberg data. This is an interesting cut, um, I think, in terms of like, hey, okay, let's look at what potentially will exist in terms of the inflation case over the next year or so, trying to cut the nuances between CPI components and 
non-reopening components or reopening components, things that we would expect to kind of be transition transitory here, and then also having kind of an energy weight that's separate. Um, and so although this is August data, not updated with September, kind of the larger trend being here that uh, if you're cutting in the reopening CPI components and you're thinking about uh, used cars and trucks in this way, lodging and food away from home, uh, airline, things like that, some of these components is really what we saw that um, kind of some of these reopening components were uh, falling uh, kind of month on month. At, and then some of the CPI non-reopening components have been increasing. And so, but those non-reopening components account for about 78%. And the largest two categories in there would likely be the rest of kind of like food and beverage category in CPI and also owner's equivalent rent. Um, and so in that way, let me just skip ahead here in terms of like owner's equivalent rent. I think everyone's got a, a, a good indication or good idea of like why that for them is not a good measure, but I'd much rather look at something like the Zillow Observe Rent Index to try to understand what's happening with the rent share of kind of the CPI perspective and what's happening um, in kind of the rental market with housing prices and inventories being at the lowest they are with housing prices up. So if you're looking at kind of Observe Rent Index, it's you know up 13% over the last year, still seeing some positive momentum and kind of month on month growth. So I'm not sure this is quite done or cooled off in terms of rent prices here. Um, and some of those kind of non-reopening components in the CPI. So I, I, I look at some of those as indicators to say, okay, this could be more persistent to next year. And I think, again, you know, starting to look at some of those comments from Yellen rolling back, and I don't think transitory was a good word to describe this anyway in the first place, uh, but starting to say that these levels and certain parts of the CPI are going to run hot for the next, maybe it's three, four, five percent over the, over the next year. Yeah, I love this chart. Um, can you go back to the CPI one that you just had at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is very interesting. It's it's thought provoking. Um, I <laughs> my first takeaway is that um, the so Pat, we we listen to on the show here. We listen to Powell's Jackson Hole speech, and in there he detailed how. Um, you know, with the fiscal support from, you know, government uh, stimmy checks that and that the services were closed down because of the lockdowns, the um, components of where the money was going was different, right? So we have like actual physical goods spending is higher than service spending because people couldn't go to the dentist, they couldn't go to their salon, uh, etc. So um, I think this this breakdown by uh, Jim Bianco. You said it was Jim Bianco, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, Jim. Yeah. Um, that I, I don't know. I would like to see more of that type of breakdown. Um, maybe is is that included in here in the reopening versus non-reopening? I don't think so. Uh, which type of breakdown? Uh, like uh, service spending versus physical goods spending. Right. No. Yeah. So this is just one cut of it and kind of one cut of the analysis did. Yeah. So I think it's more of like uh, a good thought provoking exercises of trying to break it down. But that, yeah, that's totally a fair point. Yeah, because one of the things I always uh, talk about is that people's behavior will change, you know, in a depressionary environment, your behavior is actually going to change. And so, um, you know, just like the risk on risk off type of thing, there's also um, a 
uh, I guess, inflationary and deflationary mindset. Uh, there's also a service versus a physical goods spending mindset. And so um, uh, a lot of these numbers, like, okay, so they're measuring these things back from 2017. Uh, the economic situation was different then and people's behavior. So that the, what they're spending it on now isn't going to give you the same price signals as what they were spending it on back in 2017. Am I, am I making sense with that uh, comment there? Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's totally a fair one. Um, definitely, yeah. And I think it's just the first uh, kind of analysis I saw that trying to break down the CPI components into these particular buckets to say, okay, what could be short-lived and transitory and what could be longer um, and just showing kind of some indication of some components that, that could be longer lasting. Yeah, because I don't think that we're going back to the way things were, right? I think that there is this fundamental change in society and globalization and the economy. Uh, I don't think we're going to go back to 2018 or whatever. Uh, so we have to maybe think of changing the weights of the CPI or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally fair. Um, yeah, I guess a good follow-up to question two is is another chart I had in here other than just saying, you know, here's kind of a uh, used car picture to, to look like that we're in for. If you look at the Mannheim used car price index, which is kind of a, a pretty standard economic and financial analysis index and where used cars price are going, kind of CPI following that, it looks like uh, it's still, um, you know, their index is, is up 37% increase from kind of last year as well. So still room to go and kind of used cars and trucks. Um, but one thing I was curious about, maybe to get your opinion on, is kind of in more thinking about this deflationary environment. How do you think of wage growth and and kind of in what if we're essentially in a kind of labor shortage dynamic right now playing out where, um, you know, we've got 10 to 11 million job openings still. And it seems that people are demanding higher wages and coming in here. And we're starting to see some more wage growth, maybe not necessarily at the rate of inflation. How do you think that impacts maybe inflation in the future? I tend to think of it maybe as more of an inflationary kind of resetting kind of wages and prices um, and, and what people are going to be able to pay for and kind of pushing that up more in the short term. Yeah, everything else equal, if wages are going up, uh, that's going to be able to support higher prices and it could turn into a inflationary type spiral. Um, but in this case, you also included on the slide deck here a labor force participation rate and you mentioned it there about the 10 million unemployed or whatever it is now um i think the total amount of income in the u.s has gone down over the last year and so um i don't think there is enough income even though individual wages are rising the total is decreasing and so there that's not going to be able to support higher prices it's actually going like i just was mentioning uh it's going to shift the uh, composition of goods and services in the economy. And so I think that's, uh, that's probably what we're going to see. And, you know, depending on what your, uh, I don't know, even know if it's political beliefs or if your your traditional family beliefs is, uh, you know, you might want to see a single income family being able to have higher wages. So the, the, the wage rate might go or the uh, labor force participation participation might crash by 20%, but individuals' wages will go up by 50%. So I, I think that uh, depending on what, if you think it's good or bad, I do think changes like that are very, very hard to quantify. 
Yeah, yeah, totally fair. And I think all, all in this is, is trying to put some inflation data together in a case potentially why, but honestly going through the inflationary and deflationary impacts, I think this is like the hardest uh, kind of conversation to have in every conversation that everyone is having right now in terms of what the secular versus persistent inflation is going to be and what are the causes and how can we even manage that. And uh, and I really like Howard Marks is uh, kind of a, a big time investor and he comes at it from a macro perspective, not a macro person. And honestly, he just comes out with quotes. It's just like, you know, we don't know. And some of these relationships are so hard to quantify or track over time that, that um, it's increasingly difficult. But you got to have a point of departure. So it's, it's great to have these, uh, all this data. Sam, do you have another chart for us? Uh, what else do you want to share? Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of talked about a little bit here of, of potentially like peak globalization um, in terms of this is just looking at export and imports as a total kind of a, of global GDP um, and just looking at, okay, well, is there a secular trend happening in terms of where we've reached on globalization? So that's more maybe of a long-term trend and kind of a deflationary globalization environment. Um, uh, kind of touched on that a little bit, but uh, you know this goes back to some of I guess some of the price changes and in inflation and where we see or where you know you guys might see inflation going in the future or not going. So um, this just being one more. This is like one of my favorite ADB charts that's been around for a while and they've been updating. But mostly looking at this from a technology technologically deflationary standpoint, where you're seeing all of these things that tech is touching declining at such a high rate, but I would also cut this, maybe you could think of this as like essential and non-essential goods with the essential being kind of these more expensive, higher pricing uh, goods that are harder for people to, to, to get to and to be able to afford. Um, and then where you have kind of non-essential goods here where uh, these are declining because of technology, declining because you know lower prices where people may not have as much demand for these as well. Um, and so just a divergence between what we have in terms of essential goods uh, kind of inflating over, over the last 20 years. And I think that's largely due to, um, you know, pressure, uh, kind of the income inequality gap that we've seen rising income inequality from you have this kind of massive QE printing pushing into the asset inflation market. Um, and then you're having rising incomes, uh, kind of that inequality disparity where kind of people are, are getting poorer on that side. Um, and, and then essential goods uh, where everyone is bidding on these are getting more expensive for, for a big part of the population. So, I mean, another way to kind of interpret this chart is, uh, the, it, you know, let's just say there is monetary debasement happening as, uh, as a baseline. But with that being said, everything that's getting more affordable is driven by the market and everything that's getting more expensive, you know, really has some sort of heavy government hand involved in it, right? Um, and I think that that's a pretty clear correlation uh, around the differences. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a, a good way to look at it as well. Cool. Yeah, hey, do we uh, do we want to talk about bond yields and uh, and maybe even get into Bitcoin or uh, do you have more charts? Uh, yeah, we can go into to bonds. I can kind of skip over. Maybe I'll just touch on uh, one point here uh, on the last like kind of inflationary fiscal kind of deficit spending uh, chart in terms of what I would look for in terms of a bigger inflationary shock. So this is something we wrote about, our, wrote about in our last monthly. And this is a framework that if you're familiar with Luke Groman uh, kind of has really been building on. So one, this 
which show this one chart is showing our, our public percent of GDP, uh, debt to GDP is uh, 136%. It's gone down to about 125%. Um, but then we can start thinking about, okay, from the interest expense that now we owe on this debt to GDP, plus some of these kind of bigger federal spending categories uh, in terms of Social Security, Medicare, um, kind of military spending, Medicaid type of programs that are vastly increasing over the next decade and political programs that we necessarily can't cut. Uh, if you think of those and the interest rate expense, those are now 106% of tax receipts, tax revenue. So um, that was looking at 2020 numbers. I think it's up to 111% now when you're looking at Q3. Um, and so I think, again, it just goes to show that if we're in a tough spot here, if Fed tries to tighten and we start to see maybe a, a decline uh, or recessionary type decline and decline in tax receipts, um, we're going to expect tax receipts kind of to, to fall off and the interest, interest expense to rise if rates go up. So uh, again, in this tough situation where really we have these costs that are politically not going to go through some austerity or cost-cutting spending measure, and we're not going to default on the interest expense. Um, and then uh, so, you know, kind of what happens next is that open uh, kind of up for the opportunity for more fiscal policy kind of deficit spending. Um, where that is the type of money printing that I see as like the bigger risk to the inflationary factor, because then you're talking about getting money closer into the hands of people through keeping some of these uh, kind of different programs solvent. Um, and so then this would just show you in terms of what we expect in some of these costs is kind of Medicare increasing, um, you know, over two backs over the, over the next decade and, and some things that we really can't afford to, to cut or politically will cut. We can't afford to cut it, but, uh you know, the sad reality is that it will be cut, whether it is through just uh, default or whether it's through inflation, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I would say is that that's where you really are in terms of to keep these things going. It's, it's going to have to come with more pressure on using that fiscal deficit uh, type uh, monetary printing that, you know, we've only seen a little bit of that uh, potentially could see a lot more. <laughs> Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some pay group selling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on chain in the derivatives markets and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your paid group and learn why Bitcoin is the ultimate asset by Dylan and his team. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. 
So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Uh, yeah, but we can we can uh, talk a little bit on kind of what the bond markets are. So this is some of the other stuff we covered in our in our monthly last time for the deep dive. Um, so the biggest, interesting, most interesting conversation that we're seeing is like when you start thinking of Bitcoin um, as a store of value in a four hundred trillion dollar store of value market, and you're starting to see a lot more real negative yields coming into play. So this chart just showing. Uh, kind of the U.S. high yield market or junk bond market yields uh, really hitting negative real yielding based on the recent CPI print of 5% plus over the last few months is about a 10 to, to $12 trillion market. So um, I think just opens up the conversation of, of when do you start seeing people uh, maybe trade off bonds in a way for Bitcoin and some of uh, their 60, 40 or 70, 30% allocations. You know, we push people along the risk curve to to go into the S&P 500, into equities. Um, and we start to see some like bigger name investors talk about this. So we know that, you know, Ray Dalio is saying, if, if we are in this type of inflationary investment environment, um, you'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond. See Paul Tudor Jones has talked about lowering his allocation there and increasing in, in Bitcoin. And now we start to see uh, PIMCO, which is kind of the largest, uh, one of the largest bond asset manager funds start to say, okay, how uh, we're going to look into deploying some capital in, into Bitcoin. So I think it's an interesting trend. If you're on the inflation side of things, or you think of persistent inflation, then you would start to see more of this regular, real negative yielding debt kind of playing out in the bond market. But curious, maybe from maybe from answer your perspective of a deflationary scenario, um, what you might think of what's going to happen in, in the bond market. Yeah. Um... Well, I think that these these yields, um, I mean, there's a couple explanations for them. Uh, one is inflation is actually going up. And so people's inflation expectations are going up and there is, you know, uh, a real kind of like, uh, I guess, grassroots growth in, in this uh, interest rate. Or it could be, and this is my opinion, is that there is uh, a dollar shortage around the world. And so uh, China and other markets are, are going to be selling their treasuries. And as they sell their treasuries to get hold of dollars to pay their, their debts, their dollar denominated debts, uh, because they can't, they can't uh, get the dollars they need by exporting right now because the, the international um, uh, economy is so, the global economy is so uh, in the toilet. So they, they need to sell their treasuries and that force that puts rates uh, a little bit higher, but again, they're only marginally higher. You'll hear things like, oh, it's the highest in eight years. Well, that's not saying much because uh, they, they've been very low for, for a very long time. So if you zoom out and you look at like a 50 year history of the 10 year yield, for example, um, it's a straight line down. And the, any sort of tiny little marginal increase, I believe is not a sign of like sustainable inflation, it's a sign of stress in the system. There's somebody dumping their U.S. Treasury somewhere to get a hold of dollars, and uh, so that that's like a leak 
uh, a leak in the dam. That, that's a sign of a leak in the dam. But the dam breaking is when a crisis hits. And, uh, you know, all of these trends that we see, these inflationary trends, people will show the, the three-year chart or the four-year chart, and they'll show these inflationary trends. Um, but, you know, you don't see a crisis on the four-year trend because it hits and it's just automatically down from there. So um, that, that's kind of what I see is the, the slightly marginal higher interest rates right now are a sign of a dollar shortage. What are your thoughts on that, Sam? No, I think that's uh, that's that's totally fair. Uh, that's totally well said. Um, I think you know largely what what the way I think about it um, in terms of like the U.S. Treasury market right now is essentially just in the bond market. In kind of the short term scenario, is that people are going to be looking to get out of bonds, get out of fixed income, in terms of other assets and investments that they could be in. And what it's going to happen is that the, you know the U.S. government is going to be increasingly becoming the the main net buyer of treasuries and bonds, and and this just takes a look at kind of a larger scale uh, in terms of that we really haven't had foreign investment in the bond market. Um, it's been declining now over uh, below kind of twenty five percent of government total of uh, total government debt, um, and it looks like that we're just heading to a market where where the U.S. Uh, kind of you know the Federal Reserve and the treasury are just kind of holding all of the debt. Um, and, and, and really just from an, in, from an investment kind of human action perspective is, uh, you know, people have to be betting on, you know, this massive long-term deflationary effect um, and giving up a lot of negative real yielding uh, kind of returns right now to, to be holding bonds. So um, I'm curious here, like Sam and Ansel, like we've been talking about this trend on the show a lot and it's not just the Fed, right? It's also... Um, you're seeing this in Europe, uh, you're seeing this across the globe. Um, and, you know, my take is that, you know, this is just really exposing that, you know, the whole underlying, you know, aspect of the system is a Ponzi. And this is like, now they're just, you know, the, you know, these central banks are just buying their own stuff. Like they're the only ones buying their own stuff at this point. No one else is making that market. Um, I guess, Sam, what's your take? And then maybe Ansel, you can come in with uh, with what your thoughts yeah yeah i mean I, I would say the same and and i would say it's an effort also to try to maintain kind of lower rates uh in the sense of the market rates that they're going to have to pay out on on debt expense uh it's the same thing that now i think you've seen you know the 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 debt share of the federal reserve uh now they own you know 23 to 24 percent of of all u.s treasuries and they own the same amount in the tips market um, which is, you know, trying to market pricing inflation expectations for 3% over the next year, which looks a bit distorted. But yeah, I, I think at this point, um, if they want to, in my opinion, well, how I think about it, if they want to keep rates low, they have to be continually buying kind of this net debt um, that they're putting out. And then, you know, really treasuries are, are not even maybe thought of as, uh, as investments at this point, but more maybe like a pristine collateral that can be used in, in and around markets. Yeah, I'll take a slightly different angle uh, is that I don't see when I see a, a chart like this, it says like 27% of uh, the total is owned by foreigners. Um, I just think, you know, what about the chains of collateral? What about the rehypothecation? Um, if, if the Fed owns, say, 50% of the market of all U.S. treasuries, well, maybe the other 50% is actually 
you know, rehypothecated 14 times. And that really the Fed, their share is only 5%. So it, it's very hard to know this. I, I know that there's been some studies. Jeff Schneider has done some di uh, digging on this, and he's estimated just over six, per, uh, six times that the average treasury is rehypothecated. So I, I don't know. I, I just think that uh, uh, if, they, if the market wants more treasuries, they'll rehypothecate more. If they don't, then they uh, won't. And the, the only thing, the only signals that we really get is in a severe dollar shortage that people are dumping treasuries. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, I haven't thought about the rehypothecation angle here. Um, you know, we've kind of just been looking at um, this trend in general. I think last show we talked about the ECB wanting to buy more of its own bonds instead of member country bonds and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was just kind of indicating that, you know, obviously, you know, we want to talk about where Bitcoin fits into all this. And, you know, I think, you know, Sam talked about, you know, Bitcoin kind of being that that pure collateral, that pristine collateral that is here to kind of solve a lot of the collateral issues. Um, one of the persistent guests on this show and uh, Aaron Segal, uh, you know, he coined it on a Bitcoin magazine spaces that I thought was really, really interesting is that what the Fed really does is it prints collateral for the system um, rather than, um, you know, printing dollars per se. Uh, and I feel like that kind of matches up with the narrative that uh, we've been kind of spinning. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess Bitcoin as pure collateral, our current system, you can't really, there's no block explorer for our current system. You know, you can't look into, you know, how, you know, how all this collateral is being allocated and, and distributed and stuff like that. You know, there's some reporting, but um, it's it's not, you know, quite the the same level of precision. Uh, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I mean, I guess let's go back to you, Sam. Yeah, I mean, it's totally fair in the sense of that maybe in this rehypothecation system that we have today, you're talking about Bitcoin as collateral in the future, that it grounds the level of uh, attempts at rehypothecation, what you can do in rehypothecation and resets that since, you know, in its final uh, kind of settlement, you know, instant on-chain settlement, we see that in kind of the derivatives markets playing out all the time uh, where people that overextend themselves on leverage um, uh, get absolutely <laughs> killed in the underlying. I guess one, uh, one interesting uh, dynamic that we're starting to see from Bitcoin as collateral, it's going to take a long time for Bitcoin to replace something like U.S. Treasuries as collateral and probably need one of these larger deflationary type events to take it more seriously. But I think uh, even today, what we saw is that uh, uh, the government starts to look into outlining a roadmap and, and for banks to own Bitcoin and to use it as collateral. And we start to see that more come up in kind of the Bitcoin ecosystem of people wanting to take on collateral. So one, one example is kind of Marathon Digital Holdings as a Bitcoin miner and Silvergate lending. And Silvergate has really kind of started uh, kind of these experiments to say, you know, we'll take your Bitcoin collateral and give you whatever it is, an eight to 9% USD loan on that. Um, and so we're just starting to see, I think that was a hundred million dollar revolving on credit. So incredibly small in terms of the system where we're headed, uh, but exciting to see some of these experiments as Bitcoin as collateral start to play out and really limit some of that rehypothecation risk that's in our, in our current system, just pushing it down back towards uh, where people can't really play outside of the rule set. 
that's fascinating. I hadn't heard that, um, uh, that they were looking at letting banks hold Bitcoin for that specific reason. Um, yeah, I think that Bitcoin is better collateral. And in, in, so if there's all these long chains of rehypothecated uh, collateral, then, you know, the risk just continues to go up. And that's, that's one reason why we see these, the flash crashes of the crises, you know, they, they hit out of nowhere and the Fed is always left uh, following what's going on. Um, and Bitcoin is this counterparty uh, free asset. So I think that's um, a very important thing about Bitcoin. Um, I, my, I had a question. This is kind of a total pivot, a bad segue, but uh, you've written a couple pieces recently on the futures and um, let's see, uh, let me look at the headline here is, um, is rising Bitcoin futures open interest cause for concern? Uh, do you want to talk about uh, what you think about the Bitcoin futures ETF and what are some trends that you're seeing just in the first few days of trading? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, one, I would just like my own opinion. I think it's a, a terrible product from someone who wants to owns Bitcoin, have their own self-custody. And I think if, if you're doing more investor protection, you'd be you'd be articulating um, that that really how for people to own, own Bitcoin spot and a spot ETF would be better. I think it puts pressure now in terms of the volume that came out on the on the first couple of days, kind of record-breaking days. I think showing the level of kind of demand that's out there for people that want to get Bitcoin exposure, um, that it's going to put pressure on now to say, to, to turn that into a spot ETF um, and get one of those products out there on the market, which, which Grayscale would be, would be likely the leading one to be able to do that with all of their Bitcoin assets under management. Um, but yeah, I mean, largely, I think you're going to have some increased risk of what can happen in price markets where in some way you have people are not trading the underlying and they're just trading the futures. And, and for a lot of this is going to be like an arbitrage trade. So the catch and carry trade where you know, people are buying into uh, the spot market and selling the futures and able to generate kind of a risk, uh, a, a risk-free rate of return there just by doing that simple trade. But yeah, I think one, it's it's going to increase the chance of these maybe sharper Bitcoin price movements. But in the reverse, all of this is on uh, the CME exchange right now. And the CME doesn't um, kind of, they don't allow for Bitcoin as collateral. And so really you see larger blowups when people are, are using Bitcoin as collateral and they kind of longing into Bitcoin as a collateral and the kind of short position happening. So um, definitely some more increased risk where people are trading into the futures and owning futures and, and not spot. Um, and that, you know, there's a little bit of trade-off there. I think a good back test of saying if you're in futures uh, and while this contango is happening, while futures are, are, are greater than the spot price, you're still going to get good exposure to the Bitcoin price, um, and if you do a back test, let's say Bitcoin was you know up 390 percent year to date, the people in the futures are going to have 360 percent gain. So you lose some upside by not having a spot for. But I think for a lot of people that is still just it's an easy way to get exposure, and it's and it's going to be kind of increasing demand in that vehicle. But I, I think it's pretty poor in relation to, to what a spot or just holding custody, even with someone like say like Fidelity or another custody agent could be. So I have an interesting take on uh, the path to the spot ETF that we're seeing, right? You know, and we're seeing the, the futures ETF kind of come about. 
Um, I heard an interesting perspective pretty much saying that Gary Gensler is a closet maximalist and that he knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's doing is effectively creating a moat for Bitcoin so that other coins have a much more difficult path to in a spot ETF. So the reality is if they just did a spot ETF based on Coinbase or something like that, then what's the moat to prevent, you know, Uniswap ETF and all this other stuff. And when that stuff is, is clearly not at the same level or represents what Bitcoin is. So now if you, let's just say you have, this is like one type of futures ETF that's like uh, based on securities law. The next is another type that's kind of based on commodities. And then the next is hopefully, you know, a straight spot ETF, um, you know, that creates quite a huge moat for other coins to kind of have to qualify to even, you know, apply for this kind of an instrument. Obviously, I think the, the SEC could always change and there's a lot of political and financial pressure to ease that stuff. And that's why I think shit coins are DDoS on the current, um, you know, the current system and the current enforcement system. but on the flip side, you know, there kind of is a logical big pro Bitcoin narrative around, you know, why kind of establish all of these hoops, because really only Bitcoin and soon to be Ethereum have markets on CME, right? And have these like, you know, regulated safe prices, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a totally a fair take in terms of what Genzer said in terms of favoring Bitcoin and and talking about Satoshi Nakamoto, every time he's really mentioned this, he hasn't really mentioned any other uh, kind of altcoin by name or its innovation. And so this could be a way to really just slow that process down and just say, okay, well, we're going to do a futures ETF because that is the most you know, regulated investor protection is in his mind, and then sort out what everything else in terms of altcoins or shitcoins of like, what are the rules and what's a security and what's not and kind of buys them time and to sort that out before kind of a spot ETF floods into the market. And then you have uh, kind of maybe massive more demand flooding in as well. And so like, it's like, once you open the, the faucet, you can't, can't really stop it. Ansel, do you have any, uh, any takes on that? Uh, if not, we can wrap this one up. Uh, in my old age, I'm getting more to like people like Powell and Gensler. Uh, you know, Powell we've said is a straight shooter. And um, I think he's kind of resisting the CBDCs a little bit out there in the world. Uh, and Gensler is, uh, I first thought he was a blockchain maximalist, but now I can definitely see that I think he uh, is a Bitcoin maximalist. And I think he's really good, uh, or he's kind of the guy we need at the SEC right now. So um, yeah, in my old age, I'm getting a little bit less anarchist libertarian and liking at least when we have a good politician out there or uh, representative or whatever he is yeah let's not call him good but less bad the lesser of evils right so i mean you at least have to be thankful when things are not as bad as they could be because there are some pretty whack jobs central bankers and uh politicians out there for sure and uh enforcers so um i guess with that sam Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for preparing uh, that presentation and that chart uh, and all the charts. Um, very interesting stuff. And I guess lastly, thanks for kind of, you know, fielding our kind of pushbacks. And, uh, you know, I thought that this was a very, very informative show where people could get a lot of different perspectives. So I think this is really great. 
Yeah, awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for the pushbacks and, uh, and talking about different ideas. I think that's, you know, one of the best parts about this is to try to get ideas in the open that aren't on Twitter and uh, have people chew on them. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, really appreciate it. So, I guess, Sam. Over there. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you have really made a difference with the deep dive, I have to say. And Sam, I think uh, you need to tell people where they can find more of your work as well as uh, where they can get subscribed to the deep dive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Sam J. Rule. Uh, in my link there, I've got, or in my Twitter there in the header, I've got a link to the deep dive substack. Uh, you can put slash FedWatch on the end of that, and you can get 50% off deep dive uh, subscription, or you can sign up for free. We send out uh, kind of a weekly article each week on, on on-chain Bitcoin metrics, macro, derivatives, mining market intelligence, so everything uh, kind of Bitcoin market you can want. Um, we also share out a monthly report uh, kind of free to our subscribers, to free subscribers there to, to cover that. So yeah, find me on Twitter there. Um, maybe see some writing in Bitcoin magazine for me, but yeah, come check out the deep dive. All right, y'all go check out the deep dive. I personally am a big fan. I read every single daily dive and uh, yeah, if you don't want to pay for it, there's still a free version and they are about to drop their monthly review. So uh, we're going to talk about that next week with Dylan on the show, but um, that's definitely well worth the uh, free subscription, ton of great information there. And uh yeah, I mean, I guess with that being said, make sure to follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Make sure to follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Make sure to give us those five-star reviews. And uh, yeah, keep an eye out for the next show with Dylan. Peace.